and we're now totally exposed. And there is a squeeze on gas. There is an overheating economy in many places. And there is a possibility that the lights go out this winter. There is the possibility in a world where electricity is now more in use and more vital in a digitized and computerized world that the lights go out. And they have done, by the way, in California. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, after last week's video with Rob Marstrand about bonds, you wanted to add some things about just why people are still buying bonds, a certain sector of people are still buying bonds despite these absurd yields. So take it away. Absolutely. Just goes to show you learn something new every day. I've been scratching my head. Why is it that wealth management funds and, and people managing pensions still put such large chunks of money, big percentages, into bonds when, as you say, the yields are absolutely and completely hopeless. So I asked somebody uh, within the industry, within the wealth management industry, what the thinking was, and he explained. The regulator thinks that if you're managing other people's money and you have a good percentage in bonds, you're managing the money responsibly. So it's bad thinking, it's outdated thinking, and it's yet another reason why, you know, having learned this sort of revelation to me, it backs up even more strongly why I'm doing Fortune and Freedom with you, why I'm doing UK Independent Wealth with you. It absolutely reaffirms what we launched last year, which is actually, you can do better than this. You can do better than this by taking back control of your money, your future, your destiny. Yes, of course, you won't get every call right. Nobody ever has since the dawn of time. But if you have an industry that is putting large chunks of your cash into something that, that, that effectively against inflation is giving you a negative return um, and charging you fees for doing so, and quite substantial fees, um, it's yet another reason. And that's not to say that there aren't good managers out there. It's not to say there aren't good people in the industry. There are, but as a whole, it's a fat, lazy industry that gets away with it because it thinks you're not clever enough to work it out for yourself. So this has really been uh, quite a moment for me, Nick, to understand this. Yeah, it does illustrate the whole point of what we're trying to do perfectly. Let's just mention something I've been thinking about since recording that video with Rob. And it's about this trade-off between risk and return. So it's a principle of finance that if you want to generate higher returns, you're going to have to take higher risks. And the idea of government bonds was that they established the risk-free rate of return. The yield you get from investing in something that is technically or supposedly risk-free in the sense that the government will never default because it can print money. Well, unless, they, unless it's Greece, uh, which has done so half a dozen times in 200 years. But yeah, go on. That, that's illustrating just how flawed the idea of a risk-free return is. Yeah. Nevertheless, at the moment, bonds are offering negative or no returns. So it's return-free risk because you've got the risk of inflation, the risk of the bond price falling, and the risk of a default, as you say. So you're not getting compensated for taking those risks by investing in the bond market. So it simply doesn't make sense. But let's move on to the big story in the news, which is gas and electricity prices. It's a global phenomenon. All of the newspapers I read from all around the world are talking about this. 
but it's especially bad in the UK with all of these energy companies going bust. So what's going on? I don't properly understand it because I haven't lived in the UK for long enough, at least not as an adult, but I'm sure you know exactly what's behind all of this, especially oh, as a former oh, commodities oh. trader. <laughs> you just wound me up at the back here, Nick, I've got to tell you. So about 20 years ago, in fact, in the late 90s into the early noughties, uh, Christopher Booker, who was very much my mentor and, you know, a 50-year investigative journalist, started to talk to me about wind energy and how uh, very, very big, powerful foreign companies were lobbying like crazy in London and in Brussels and were winning over the hearts and minds of the media and of politicians that wind energy was going to be the holy grail that wind energy uh, was going to be the way that we dramatically reduced carbon emissions. Um, and, and this was where we needed to go. And indeed, we would become one of the world leaders in wind energy. And, and, and that mentality has gone right the way through British politics. Indeed, uh, Boris Johnson, a few months ago, said we're going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. Well, jolly, jolly well done, everybody. Oh, let's go to our Notting Hill dinner party and show how virtuous we've all been. And then when Cameron came along, the 2013 Energy Act, basically he wanted to despoil every piece of upland in Britain with these pig ugly and in the wrong circumstances, utterly useless wind turbines. And I campaigned in the 2013 English local elections against these wind turbines. And amazingly, UKIP went from nowhere to getting 25% of the vote. You know, we nearly beat the Conservatives we, and we beat Labour um, because people didn't want them. Now, you may say there's an element of nimbyism in that. Look, I accept we have to have ugly things. We have to have power stations. We have to have roads. We have to have pylons. I know that we need to have some ugly stuff. I don't mind ugly stuff. I can accept ugly stuff if it works. And then something really dawned on me. There I was in 2015, doing the national leaders debate, up against Clegg, Miliband, Cameron, and I was leading UKIP, and we were in a relatively strong position. And I started to make this argument that wind was not the future. It may have quite useful local applications. There may be circumstances in which you can use it, but the idea that a national grid can operate off something that is so unreliable was nonsense and was going to prove to be too expensive. And then it dawned on me. So David Cameron's father-in-law was being paid a thousand pounds a day to have wind turbines sited on his land in North Lincolnshire. Ed Miliband's wife earned most of her money as a lawyer working for wind turbine companies supporting their onshore planning applications. Oh, and Nick Clegg, not to be outdone. The Deputy Prime Minister's wife was a well-paid non-exec director of the biggest wind energy company in Spain. And I realized, follow the money. This is a racket. This is big business and big government working in cahoots. And what we've done through massive taxpayer subsidy, be it with the onshore farms to begin with, then the offshore farms later, which were even more expensive to build. And what we've done is we've put the price of energy up. The average household and the average business is now paying 25% more. This is way before this crisis. 25% more on their electricity bill, right? Just to subsidize renewables. There's been no debate. There's been no discussion. Why? Because all the press support it and all the parties support it. And people like me that raise it are said to be deniers of climate change, which is nothing to do with the argument at all. So number one, it's led to the, one of the biggest transferences of wealth 
from the poor to the rich that we've ever seen. I mean, just on the most astonishing level. But the problem is it's not reliable because we cannot store electricity in large volumes without it costing billions and billions and billions. And even then it's pretty inefficient. And you can talk to me about battery technology. I've been hearing this for 20 years and there's still no answer to it. So what do you have to do? You have to make a decision. What happens when the wind doesn't blow? So, you know, the Green Brigade say, oh, isn't it marvellous? You know, 25% of our energy came from wind last week. Well, yeah, when the conditions are right, that's fine. But when the wind blows too strong, you have to turn them off. Otherwise, the engines burn out. And you get a period like we've had of relative calm through September. For the last month, wind energy has contributed 2% of our energy requirements. 2%. So you have to back that up with gas. We've left ourselves totally exposed to the gas market. We've even got rid on the East Coast of our big gas backup storage facility. I mean, this is how cretinous government energy policy has been at every level. So we only have in store, in reserve, 1.7% of global usage. That is not a backup contingency plan. We are now completely at the mercy of the, li the liquefied natural gas and natural gas markets. Uh, Putin, well, it's not quite OPEC 1973, but they've been releasing gas into the European market on a hand-to-mouth basis over the summer. They've not been allowing the Europeans to build up huge reserves, which doesn't say much for Merkel's strategy on this either. Uh, and we're now totally exposed. And there is a squeeze on gas. There is an overheating economy in many places. And there is a possibility that the lights go out this winter. There is the possibility in a world where electricity is now more in use and more vital in a digitized and computerized world that the lights go out. And they have done, by the way, in California, who became too reliant on solar. So as a result of appalling uh, government policy, a total lack of strategy, this is where we find ourselves. Now, it's obviously one thing to talk negatively about something and I've been saying this for goodness knows how long so I'm within my rights to do I'm within my rights to say I told you so but it's what we do about it and the other week we talked about nuclear energy you and I in one of these conversations and we talked about you know what was going to happen uh, to uranium which, inter which interestingly has had a big rise to me you know Rolls-Royce build small nuclear reactors that go in submarines that I'm pleased to say Australia will now be teaming up with us and the Americans to build. So we do now have a prospect of nuclear energy uh, that is not housed in those 1950s and 60s monstrosities, but done on a much smaller, a much more efficient scale, where the amount of waste that is produced really is absolutely tiddly. Yes, you've got to deal with it. I understand that. And I understand the risk of terrorism. And I understand you know, that Chernobyl was a disaster, but that was an old style, vast reactor. Um, and I, I think we need to have a debate about where we go in the future. And if we're serious about reducing carbon emissions from electricity production, <clears throat> it seems to me that nuclear is the only way we can go. As it happens, the shares of Drax have rallied sharply. Drax, one of the biggest power plants in the UK. Oh, viewers, you'll love this. 
in the name of going green, guess what Drax uses to produce energy? They burn trees. No, I'm not joking. They burn vast amounts of timber imported from North America, which shows you, once again, a complete lack of strategy going through the whole energy sector. So what happens from here? Well, um, obviously, natural gas prices are about four times what they were this time last year, up nearly 300% on the year so far. Um, I don't know is the answer. You know, maybe the market normalizes, maybe it doesn't. And then you've got another piece of government genius. Ed Miliband, in those debates in 15, proposed a price cap on gas prices, a price cap on domestic bills. Cameron's response is, that's communism. I thought, yeah, pretty much. If you set floors and caps on currencies or commodities, and through my 40 years, every single time government does it, it gets it wrong. Every single time, 100% record of failure. And, and yet, having, just, having denounced it as communist, guess what the Tory government do? They introduce a price cap. <laughs> so you've now got maybe half of our energy, gas supplier, electricity suppliers, are going to go bankrupt because they can't buy wholesale energy at the price they're committed to selling it. And guess what will happen in this wonderful new socialist world? The government's going to bail them out. I mean, you just couldn't, Nick, you couldn't invent this story at any level. Uh, it was all, to me, so predictable, uh, increasingly over the last couple of decades. So we're in a right old mess. Let's hope the price of gas normalises. Let's hope that it's possible to keep supply. But I think the United Kingdom is potentially more vulnerable on this than any other Western country. And it is, as I say, over-reliance on wind energy and a complete lack of storage facilities for gas. It's incredible. It looks like it's going to be an interesting winter. Um, what I want to emphasize about all of this is, is that it's not just about household gas and electricity prices and, and bills. It's about the whole industrial strategy of Britain. If you, if you don't have good gas and, and electricity prices yeah. and reserves and reliable, then you know, the whole this whole you know, Brexit boom, this whole idea of all these car companies yeah. coming back, all this sort of stuff, it, it's not going to happen, at least not as, as I mean, well as I mean, let's should. remind ourselves, Nick, let's remind ourselves that as a result of our expensive electricity, way more expensive than America, way more expensive than most of Europe, just in the last decade, both of our aluminium smelters closed. Most of our chemical production, gone. Most of our refining, gone. Really old-fashioned heavy engineering ain't going to come back. And these are all the industries that use vast amounts of electricity. And you've seen the fertilizer plant closing um, you know, up in uh, the northeast of the country. And therefore, we haven't got carbon dioxide for fizzy drinks and for food. Amazing, isn't it, really? On the one hand, there's Boris in the UN. There's too much CO2 in the world. And now there's a crisis in Britain. We haven't got enough CO2. I mean, you can't work some of this stuff out. Um, but no, the, 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 uh, underneath this were leaders who don't understand why the price of energy means so much, because their obsession with going green has been so great. So the frustration for me is we've talked about Brexit Britain and the opportunities that it gives, and they're absolutely there. And we're seeing some of them. You know, Despite the difficulties, I mean, every week there are tens of billions of dollars from the states wanting to come into this country to invest in Britain. I mean, the, the level of confidence in the UK coming from the states is stunning. Um, and that's good. You know, we must decide what we do sell and what we don't, but that is good. The 
strategic tie-up between Australia, the Americans and us is something we could never have done as part of NATO. And not only strategically is that a great place to be, but actually for Rolls-Royce and others, it's industrially a very, very good place to be. So there are good things that are happening, but what we're not taking advantage of uh, is so much more that we could do to make ourselves more competitive than our European neighbours. And energy, not for everything, but in large parts of industry, is one of the absolutely key components. And nobody, but nobody in Downing Street has thought this through. Let's hope, let's hope that in some ways, this crisis does bring about a rethink. And, I, and, and, and Nick, I do believe this. I do believe there is gonna be a fresh debate about the nuclear industry. And I've mentioned Rolls-Royce, uh, but there could be other players in this space as well. So from an investment perspective, if I'm right, if I'm right about the way, about the, way the national debate's gonna go, and it needs to go somewhere, because we can't go on like this, um, there may well be investment opportunities in that nuclear space. It's ironic that that happens after the price of uranium has absolutely ballooned. So we've we had our chance the last decade. Well, you're right. What's the what's the investment angle in terms of the wider energy transition? Then is is it all about monitoring the the job appointments and directorships of politicians' spouses to try and figure out what the next boom is? Because <laughs> well, it, it sounds yes, like that would yes. that strategy would work quite well. Yes, follow the money, as I said earlier. Uh, no, well, that's right. And and you know the extent to which they were all in wind was astonishing. Uh, yeah, I don't know yet where they're all going, but let's keep a very, very close eye uh, for where people like Stanley Johnson, for example, turn up next. And that may give us a big clue as to where we're going. It's rather like, uh, it's rather like Huawei. You know, if you, if you have a look at the non-exec directors of Huawei over the last few years, it's retired politicians, retired civil servants, big businessmen. So you could clearly see the influence that China was buying. So yeah, let's keep a really close eye on nuclear development. Uh, you know, we haven't yet got, uh, you know, uh, we, we haven't yet got to the whole fusion angle. If anybody ever cracks that, then nuclear will be the future in the, in the most massive way. But I do think, as you say, let's watch and let's see where this debate goes and where the money goes. I think it's really interesting. And I think this crisis, particularly if it gets worse over the winter, is going to precipitate that debate. Thanks very much for watching. And thanks for joining us, Nigel.